Take your Bible with me today if you'll open to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If you've been with us now over the course of this year, you know we've been studying through 1 Corinthians 15. This is actually the 30th message. And the third message from the first 11 verses of chapter 15. And we're going to slow down. We're going to be a longer time in 1 Corinthians 15 because there's just so much that we don't want to miss. Beginning in verse 1 down through verse 11. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preach to you, which also you received and in which you stand, by which also you are saved if you hold fast that which I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. After that, he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. Then last of all, he was seen by me also as by one born out of due time. For I am the least of the apostles who am not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Let's pray together. Lord, we continue today talking about the gospel. Understanding the components of the gospel. And I pray, Lord, today that we'll see that the gospel isn't just good for the moment of salvation, but the gospel is good for every day of our lives, that you are at work through the gospel, making us into the image of your Son. Lord, cause us today to be alert, to be aware, to be listening, to be able to hear what the Spirit of God has to say to us. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. I need for you for a few minutes this morning that you would engage your brains. If you're in neutral at this moment, you're going to miss this first part, and if you miss this first part, you won't appreciate the second part. So if you had a late night and you got up early this morning and your eyelids are heavy and you thought to yourself, well, I make it through the service. This is really the moment you want to make it through because if you get this theological aspect, then you're going to understand the practical aspect of what I'm going to be telling you in a few minutes. We've been talking about the gospel, about the particulars of the gospel. That was the first point of this three-point message that we're working through, the particulars of the gospel. And we learned that the particulars of the gospel are that he died, buried, he was buried, that he rose again, and that he was seen, and he was seen, and he was seen, and he was seen all the way to his ascension back to the Father. And we have understood that that is the core of the gospel message. I want to read to you by way of beginning today some definitions that have been given by different contemporary preachers of our day and one from the ancient world 
where they are defining the gospel. And I want to ask you to see if you hear the four particulars of the gospel in these definitions. First comes from Tim Keller. Tim Keller is a was he just recently passed away, but he was a very respected Presbyterian, uh, was a theologian, was a pastor of a church, a, a, a large church in New York City. And he defines the gospel this way. The gospel is the good news that through Christ, the power of God's kingdom has entered history to renew the whole world. When we believe and rely on Jesus' work and, and record rather than ours, for our relationship to God, that kingdom power comes upon us and begins to work through us. Through the person and work of Jesus Christ, God fully accomplishes salvation for us, rescuing us from judgment for sin into fellowship with him, and then restores the creation in which we can enjoy our new life together with him forever. Another that I want to read to you comes from Scott McKnight. Scott McKnight is a prolific author. He is a seminary professor. I've read several of his books about King Jesus and have learned some wonderful things from him. He's an Anglican. He was ordained into the Anglican church. And this is his definition of the gospel. The gospel is the work of God to restore humans to union with God and communion with others in the context of a community for the good of others in the world. And then a definition that's written by John Piper, a very familiar name, a Baptist, uh, a very prolific author, a theologian, at one time pastor, he's no longer pastoring now, but a very prolific author, and he writes about the gospel. He says, the gospel of Christ is the good news that at the cost of his son's life, God has done everything necessary to enthrall us with what will make us eternally and ever increasingly happy, namely himself. And then to take somebody from the ancient world, we'll take the reformer, Martin Luther. Listen to his definition. At its briefest, he says, the gospel is a discourse about Christ, that he is the Son of God and became man for us, that he died and was raised, and that he has been established as Lord over all things. Now, when you hear those four different definitions, three of them from contemporary men, one from the ancient world, do you hear the four particulars that we've been talking about of the gospel? And the answer is yes, though they're muted sometimes, the answer is yes. And I will tell you that all four of these men believe in the gospel as we've been talking about it. And as it's defined by Paul here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, all four of these men believe that the very core of the gospel is the death of Jesus for our sins, his burial, his resurrection from the grave according to the scripture, and ultimately his ascension back to the Father. They believe that. And the good news is that it is that message which... Paul says in the book of Romans, is the power of God to salvation. You do not mess with the gospel. The gospel is the power of God to salvation. 
They want to expand the definition because the word gospel means good news. They want to expand the definition, and I understand that, and I can appreciate that. They want to go from God's kingdom in heaven that comes to us through the Lord Jesus Christ who gave his life for us so that we can go into God's kingdom in the future. They want to begin with God's glory that comes to us through the person of Jesus and the sacrifice and resurrection of Jesus so that we can be enthralled in the person of Jesus. I get that, and if you were listening, probably if you could read these for yourself again, you would feel some of the other parts of their theology coming through, especially their eschatology, coming through these definitions. But when you define the gospel... You may broaden it in your explanation to people, but you got to make sure that at the heart and at the core of that message is that Jesus died for our sins, that he was buried, that he rose again, that he was seen and seen and seen until he was ascended back to the Father. We talked about those four particulars of the gospel. Don't let us ever change that gospel message. No matter how we explain it, don't ever go away from the core of what the gospel message is. Today, we're going to start talking about the power of God in the gospel, the power of the gospel. We talked about the particulars of the gospel. Now we're going to talk about the power of the gospel. And here's where I need you to engage your minds very carefully. And I want you to listen to again what he says in verses 1 and 2. Moreover, brethren... I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and in which you stand. So what do we know about them? These are people who received the gospel, who believed the gospel, who were saved by the gospel, by which also you are saved. But then he puts this question. If, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. You say, Pastor, what is he doing putting the if there? If they've believed the gospel, then they're saved. But then he says, that's true only if you hold fast that word which I preached. And what was going on in Corinth? What was going on in the church at Corinth? There were some who were denying the resurrection and thus denying the resurrection of Jesus. What is he telling us when he says that you're saved if you hold fast the word which I preached to you. That sounds like not eternal security. That sounds like eternal insecurity. That, that sounds like you could have salvation, but if you stop believing some part of it, that you could lose that salvation. And that's how many people interpret this passage. But the reality is that what he's talking about here isn't salvation in the sense of our justification. He's talking about salvation in the sense of our sanctification. To be sanctified means to be set apart. It's a work that God is doing in our lives every single day, setting us apart unto himself and conforming us to the image of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Actually, when we talk about salvation... There's one salvation, but the Bible presents it to us in three tenses. It presents it to us, first of all, in the past tense. That's what we call justification, where God declares us right with him through the sacrifice and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It happens one time at a moment in your life when you believe in Jesus Christ 
for the gift of eternal life. Instantaneously, you become a child of the living God. That's what Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 is all about. For by, say, but for by grace, now listen to the wording, you have been saved, have been, past tense, Once time, one time for all, you have been saved. For by grace, you have been saved. And that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. There is, in the moment of a Christian, that point in time when he or she believes in Jesus Christ and instantaneously is justified, made right with God through the gospel. But there is a present tense to our salvation, and that's what we call sanctification. That present tense aspect of our salvation is something that is an ongoing process, and it's that which Paul is speaking about in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 2 when he says, if you hold fast that word, that salvation that you experienced instantaneously will go on at work in your life, conforming you to the image of Jesus, if you don't walk away from the gospel, because the power of God is in the gospel. And if you walk away from the power of God, then you walk away from the sanctifying process that's accomplished through the gospel. That's what we find if you look back just a few pages to chapter 1. When we studied through chapter 1, we didn't speak about it particularly. But if you look back to chapter 1 and look at verse 18 and listen to what he says. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But now listen to how he words it. But to us who are being saved. Now, let me ask you a question. Are you saved at the moment you believe in Jesus Christ? Absolutely. Then what does he mean when he says you are being saved? It is the power of God. He's telling you that as a part of the salvation that you experience is that God is saving you in the present tense. He's constantly at work in your life. I am being saved. And then there's a future tense to our salvation. One salvation in three tenses. A past tense that begins the journey. The salvation that is received from Christ instantaneously and begins this journey with Christ. That ongoing salvation that's worked out in our lives as we are faithful and true to the gospel and to the truth of his word. And then there's that future tense of salvation. What is the, the moment of uh, our glorification, when we are in the presence of Jesus Christ and we are free from living in this world of sinfulness. Listen to how he words it. You need not turn here, but Romans chapter 5, listen to how he, he words it. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, that's already happened in the past, you've been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. We shall be in the future saved. So, so when you think of your salvation, there's the past tense aspect. You were born into the family of God at a moment in time, justified, made right with God through believing in Jesus, and it's all by the gospel. There is a present tense aspect to your salvation where you are being saved from sin every single day, and God is at work in your life sanctifying you. You are being saved. God is separating you to himself and conforming you to himself. And one day we will all be saved. 
That's the future tense, when we will be glorified and we will be in the Lord's presence once and for all and forever, and sin will be no more for us. We'll never think of it, ever have to think of it again. It'll be gone forever and we'll be glorified. I will be saved. So when you talk about being saved... You talk about, I have been saved, I am being saved, and I will be saved. That's how the Bible presents the salvation that we enjoy. But if you stop believing the gospel, the part that stops working in your life is that sanctifying process. If you don't believe the gospel at the beginning, you can't be saved. If you don't go on believing the gospel, you can't keep being saved. That's the point he's making. A little later, he'll connect all this together when he says, unless you've believed in vain. You notice down in verse 14 what he says, and if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty, it's vain, and your faith is also empty, it's vain. Or down to verse 17, and if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile, you are still in your sins. Or verse 19, if in this life only we have hope, in Christ we are of all men the most miserable or the most pitiable. You hear what he's saying? You that are thinking about or have already given up on the resurrection and given up on the resurrection of Jesus, do you understand that you just gutted the gospel and the power of gospel in which you believed, but if you want it to go on working, you hold on to and stay close to that gospel? Because one day even that gospel will deliver you out of this world into a place of glorification. Now, did you get that? Did I do better than a calculus teacher in explaining you a very difficult problem? When you read your Bible, pay careful attention to the past tense, the present tense, and the future tense when he's talking about salvation. Because what we're going to be talking about for the next few minutes is that present tense aspect. It is the gospel. It is the death, the burial, and resurrection of Jesus, his ascension back to the Father, that he is alive, that he was seen and seen and seen and seen, as it says in those verses. It's it's that gospel that empowers you every day. You never want to leave the gospel. Say, well, I want to move on from the gospel. You never want to move on from the gospel. The gospel is always at work in our lives. We want it to always be at work in our lives. And if there's a moment in time when you have trusted in Christ for eternal life, that salvation is being worked out every day in your life, and you are being saved from the power of sin every single day. We were, we were saved from the penalty of sin when we, when we trusted in him. We're being saved from the power of sin every single day. And one day we'll be saved from the presence of sin when he calls us into his presence. That's the salvation that you and I enjoy. Now, understanding that we're talking about sanctification, the sanctifying work of this salvation, that brings me to the, to the practical part of what I want you to say. He begins here talking about those who saw Christ. He lists three particular names, Peter, James, and you would think John, but it's Paul. Peter, James, and Paul. But then he talks about the 12, which is just a a term. It's it's just a, a, a figure of speech referring to the disciples, the apostles themselves. He talks about some 500 that saw him at one time alive. It is those three names that I want to stop for a moment and I want us to consider, especially the first and the last name. He begins by saying that he was seen, in verse 5, by 
Cephas. That's an incredible thought. I mean, I don't know if you see that or not, but I want you to see it. The fact that Cephas is placed first is an evidence of the grace of God extended toward Peter. Cephas is Peter. Why in the world would he begin with the name Cephas? Why would he mention Peter first? And the answer to that question is because he was one of the favorite preachers of the Corinthian church. You remember earlier in our study that we learned that they were divided over who was their favorite preacher, who had the style that they most enjoyed listening to? I'm of Cephas, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos. Some said I'm of Christ, and they were divided. And Peter's one of the favorite preachers. But when you think about Peter, you cannot help but think about his denials of Jesus Christ. Of all the disciples, they all abandoned Jesus in those moments of his arrest and his crucifixion. But in those moments of his arrest and crucifixion, it was Peter who's most memorable, isn't it? Because it was Peter who followed at a distance. He shouldn't have actually been following at all. Jesus had told them that when the shepherd is struck, that the sheep are going to be scattered. He said to the religious people who had come to take him under arrest to let his disciples go away, let his disciples leave. But Peter and John chose to follow Jesus. A lot of sermons preached about it, but they really weren't supposed to be. They decided to follow Jesus, and they followed him right down to where Jesus was going to be tried in Jerusalem. You remember what happens? Take your Bible with me and turn there for a moment. It's Luke chapter 22, beginning in verse 54. And listen to what happens when he gets there. He's watching from a distance. He's trying to stay in the shadows. He's trying to make sure that he's not recognized, that nobody knows him. But there's going to be some questions that are going to be asked of him beginning in verse 54 of chapter 22. Having arrested him, that is Jesus, they arrested Jesus, they led him and brought him into the high priest house. But Peter followed at a distance. From the gospel of John, we know that John was also with him. Verse 55. Now when they had kindled a fire in the midst of the courtyard and sat down together, that's always a problem, isn't it? Peter sat among them. And a certain servant girl, seeing him as he sat by the fire, looked intently at him and said, This man was also with him. But he denied him, saying, Woman, I do not know him. And he tells his very first lie. I don't know him. Remember what Peter just said just hours before when they were in the upper room and Jesus was talking about his crucifixion? And Jesus said, uh, Peter had said, I will go with you to the death, Jesus. And Peter is told by Jesus that, in fact, he's going to deny him before the rooster crows the next day. Do you remember that, that, that conversation that was going on between Jesus and Peter in the upper room? And here is Peter. He's down here sitting amongst the people who are watching all of this trial unfold. And what does Peter do when asked if he's one of them? He says, I don't even know who you're talking about. I don't even know him. That's bad enough, isn't it? He goes on in verse 58. And after a little while, another saw him and said, you also are of them. But Peter said, here's the second lie, man, I am not. Oh, man, Peter, you're digging the hole really deep here. You're making it worse than it has to be. Peter, what are you doing? 
You just told Jesus you'd go to death with him. Now you're here denying him. Can you imagine? Verse 59. Then after about an hour had passed, another confidently affirmed, saying, Surely this fellow was also with him, for he's a Galilean. The Galileans spoke with a different kind of dialect or different kind of sound when they spoke. It'd be like the difference between Wayne County and Lincoln County and Cabell County. They knew he wasn't from Jerusalem. They knew by his accent that he was from the Galilean area. This guy, who is this guy? In Peter says, man, I do not know what you are saying. And he tells his third lie. And immediately while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. Now listen, verse 61. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word of the Lord. How he had said to him, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. So Peter went out and wept bitterly. Can you imagine how miserable he must have been in those moments that followed? Can you imagine how miserable it was? That is, until the resurrection day. And after the resurrection, Jesus appears to Peter, to Cephas. He appears to Peter. On one occasion, he appears to him down at the Sea of Galilee. And you know what happens down at the Sea of Galilee? Just keep turning in your Bible to John chapter 21. The disciples have gone down to Galilee. They don't know what else to do. Peter doesn't know what else to do except to go out and to start fishing. That's what he knew. He might have even thought to himself, you know, what is my life worth now after my denials of Jesus and the lies that I said about him? What is my life worth now? I'm just going to go back to fishing. And they've been out fishing. He and the disciples have been out fishing and they've caught zilch. It's the dusk of the, of the day. It's the early morning hours of the day, I should say. He can barely see the shore, but you can see somebody standing on the shore. And he asked them, have you caught anything? No, we hadn't caught a thing. We hadn't caught a thing. He said, put the nets on the other side. And they put the nets on the other side, and they pull out 153 large fish. They immediately know this is Jesus. This is a miracle of Jesus. Peter begins to swim to shore. He wants to get to Jesus as fast as possible. But they have breakfast together. And you know what happens after the breakfast, beginning in verse 15? So when they had eaten breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, I, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of Jonas, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. Verse 17, he said to him the third time, how many times did Peter deny the Lord? Three times, he said to him the third time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. I don't know if you see what's going on here or not, but you see the present tense aspect of the salvation that we enjoy being worked out before our very eyes. Here is a man who had put his faith in Jesus Christ. You remember that famous declaration when Jesus asked his disciples, who do men say that I am? And he turns to the, the disciples themselves and Peter says, you're the son of God. 
You're the son of God. And it, Jesus says to Peter, on that testimony that you've given, we're going we're gonna to build, I'm going to build the church on that testimony. You remember this man, Peter? I mean, this man who was the leader, he's the one who spoke up first. He was the one out of the boat first to walk on water. He's always the one who's talking and leading. He's the leader. But after those three denials, he's so ashamed of himself. He's so broken over what he's done, the failure of his life, the lies that he told. But Jesus doesn't write him off. Jesus doesn't say, you're not worth anything anymore. After the resurrection, Jesus comes back in the power of the gospel and says, do you love me, Peter? Yes, Lord, you know I love you. Do you love me, Peter? Yes, Lord, you know I love you. Do you love me, Peter? Yes, Lord, you know I love you. And three times, Jesus comes to him and says, do you love me? Once for each of the denials that he had had because what he was doing was what the gospel does in all of our lives. There's a sanctifying and a saving process that was being worked out. And there's been a lot of sermons preached about why Jesus asked those specific questions. But may I just suggest to you three very simple reasons why Jesus asked those three questions. First of all, because he wanted Peter to know that God is not done with you yet. Second of all, because he wanted Peter to know that God is not done with you yet. And third of all, because he wanted Peter to know God is not done with you yet. Because though you failed and you failed miserably, the saving work of the salvation that God has that work within us by way of the gospel of God, by the way of the presence of the Holy Spirit who indwells us, doesn't give up on you, doesn't give up on you. As a matter of fact, God gives you opportunity to come and to be conformed to his image and to be made right with him and to get back in the fight Amen. and not walk away. I just want to say something to everybody. Just listen to me carefully. If blamelessness as a character quality, means sinlessness, then none of us will ever be qualified to serve Jesus in any capacity. Do you understand what Jesus is doing in our lives? He saves us at a moment, at an instant in time. We are justified by faith in Christ, but he is saving us every single day from the power of sin that sometimes overtakes us like it did with Peter, and he doesn't give up on us. He keeps working to set us apart to himself, to make us more like himself, to conform us to his image so that one day we'll be glorified and we'll be saved from the very presence of sin into his very heaven that he's created. That's the salvation of God. It's at work. It's going on, present tense. And Peter was experiencing it. And he put it first here, I believe, because he wanted you to know, he wanted us to know that God wasn't through with Peter. Though he had failed miserably after the resurrection, Jesus wasn't through with Peter. And when you stop and you think about it, think about the fact that Think about the fact that Jesus restores Peter to this incredible work that he's going to end up doing. Would you have taken a man that denied you three times and lied about even knowing you 
Would you take him back and would you give him another opportunity and would you do any kind of a work through him? Would you ever trust him again? And yet the God of heaven, the one that we call our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, never gives up on any of his children and is ever at work seeking to save you not from the penalty of your sin, that happened once for all, for all time, but seeking to save you from the power of sin that wants to take you down and keep you down. And he's ever at work trying to sanctify us and make us more like Jesus every single day. And think about what God ended up doing with Peter. This man who three times denied the Lord Jesus You realize that in Acts chapter 1, it was Peter who led the effort to replace Judas with another disciple that had been with Jesus from the beginning? You remember, it's Peter who stands up and says, we've got to fulfill the scripture here. We've got to have somebody to take this place. And they chose two men, and then they cast lots, which was a means of just saying, God, you'll have to make the ultimate choice. And Matthias was chosen, a man who had been with him from the baptism, the baptism of Jesus, to the resurrection of Jesus, who had heard the things that he had said, who had seen the things that he had done, and he becomes one of the 12. And who was leading that? It was Peter. Or think about Acts chapter 2. Who was it on the day of Pentecost who stood up and preached and 3,000 were saved? You remember they were in the room, 120 of them or so. They were praying and the, the, waiting on the, the Holy Spirit to arrive. And they heard this wind, this mighty wind that was sounding. And they were baptized into the body of Christ. The very first church was birthed into existence. They went outside and began to speak. And they sp- sp- spoke in tongues, in languages, in dialects that they didn't even know so that the people could understand what they were saying. And it was Peter who preached. And how many people were saved on that day? There were 3,000. And how many were baptized? We always talk about We had 3,000 saved and 12 baptized. <laughs> had 3,000 people who were saved. And there were, 12, there were, th- <laughs> were 3,000 people who were baptized confusing my own self. 3,000 at the preaching of Peter. Or think a little later in Acts chapter 3, it's Peter and John who walk past the beautiful gate of the temple and they see a man who's crippled. He's brought there every day to ask alms and to beg for people to help him because he can't work himself. He can't make a living himself. He has to live off the generosity of others. And Peter walks by, and he sees this man. He locks eyes on this man. He says, silver and gold I don't have, but what I do have I'll give to you. Rise up and walk. And the man starts walking. That was Peter that God used. Or think about Peter in chapter 4 when he's standing before the religious leaders. And they're questioning him. Listen to what he says. Rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man by what means he has been made well, we'll let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands, uh, stands here before the whole. And then he goes on to say, nor is there salvation in any other. That's a bold declaration, wouldn't you say? And when they take him under arrest and tell him, you can't talk about this anymore, he goes on to say, you can't stop me from preaching. You can beat me and you can arrest me. You can even kill me. But I have to keep telling what I have seen and what I have heard. 
Or think about Acts chapter 5. Who was presiding in the service when Ananias and Sapphira came and lied to God and made an attack at the very unity of that New Testament church? You know who they laid their money down? At whose feet they laid their money down? It was at the feet of Peter. Or think about Peter a little bit later in chapter 5. Do you realize that Peter was used by God to do some miraculous things? And people just wanted the shadow of Peter to, to cross over them, and they would be healed. They would bring their loved ones who were sick and infirm out into the street so that when Peter passed by, just his shadow would pass over them so that they could be healed. Or think about Peter when he came to Joppa, to the house of the woman who was full of good works and charitable deeds. You remember her, Dorcas? This woman who had done these wonderful things, especially for widows, but she died and all the widows are grieving and he comes and he goes and he raises her from the dead. Or think about Peter in Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10. And do you realize who has the keys of the kingdom? Peter does. And he sees this sheet coming down with all of these unclean animals and God's giving him a vision of what's about to happen. And what's about to happen? Cornelius has some men coming and going to bring Peter back to his house. And the gospel is going to start going to the Gentiles and not to just the Jews. And Peter unlocks the door of the gospel to the Gentile world. You say, Pastor, what in the world are you saying? <laughs> Maybe I haven't made it clear. But I want to make it clear. The day you trust in Jesus Christ, you were saved once for all, forever. But that same gospel that saved you once for all forever is at work in your life every single day, saving you every single day from yourself and from the power of sin. And even when you fail, the power of the gospel doesn't go away. The power of the gospel is still there to be at work in your life. It's the reason why when I look for counselors to send people to, I send them to Christian counselors who understand how to counsel people, but also understand that it's the power of the gospel that sets us free every single day from the power of sin. There isn't anything that binds you that the power of the gospel cannot set you free from. There is nothing. And even if you have failed, even if you have failed as a believer, God hasn't given up on you. And God is at work to save you. Not in justification, but in sanctification. To save you every single day. To save you from yourself. And to save you from your mistakes. And to save you from your failures. And to save you. God can still use you. He still has a purpose for you. God is still at work. God certainly wasn't through with Peter after his terrible failure during Jesus' trial. But if you're wondering how this power of the resurrection affects you, now listen to me. Is your marriage dead? He can resurrect it. Is your testimony ruined? He can resurrect it. Is your influence gone? He can resurrect it. Is your calling forgotten? He can resurrect it. Is your faith failing? He can resurrect it. That's the power of the gospel. Not just for the moment of salvation, but for the ongoing salvation. We don't ever want to get away from the gospel. It is the reason why 
He instituted the Lord's Supper for us to be reminded again and again and again that the power is in what he did for us, in the sacrifice of himself for us, and in his resurrection, and that he was seen, and that he was seen, and that he was seen. Do you get what I'm saying? I'm trying to offer hope to those of you who feel like you've failed. I'm trying to help you to see that there's reason to be positive if you've made a mess of things. I'm trying to tell you that if you're laying in a gutter somewhere wondering, how am I going to get up and move forward and do anything? How will God ever use me again? Let me ask you a question. Did God use Peter again? I believe he chose Cephas as the first name because he wanted to show that this salvation, as he said here, by which you are saved if you hold fast the word which is preached to you. I, I I want you to see that this salvation that had come to Peter's life was going to continue to work in Peter's life even though the failure was horrendous and horrible. When we were young people, which has been about 15 years ago. It's been more than 40 years ago. Well, it's been almost 45 years ago. Are those my three denials right there? There was a little campaign that went on at our home church. I don't remember everything about the campaign. I wish I did because I'd like to redo it. But it was a little campaign, and we all got a button. It was sort of a large button that had a pin on the back of it, and you stuck it through your dress or you stuck it through your coat or you know, whatever you were wearing, and you were supposed to wear it for a period of time, every day for a period of time. And on that button were these letters. You couldn't get them all on one line, so they were broken over three, over three lines, but there were these letters, P-B-P-G-I-N-F-W-M-Y. Mary remembers that button. And we all wore it, I don't know, two or three weeks, we wore that button every single day. By the way, when I typed that into my word processor, there were red lights going off everywhere. <laughs> don't recognize this word, all these different suggestions for what word I was trying to mean, and they didn't ever get it right. Those are the letters of this little statement. Please be patient, God is not finished with me yet. And people would walk up and they'd say, well, what, what does that button on your, on your shoulder mean? What is, what is that? It's please be patient. God is not finished with me yet. Somebody else asked, what in the world? Can you not spell? No, no, no. It stands for something. It stands for please be patient. God is not finished with me yet. And then we'd sing a little, a little song. And I, I think it's probably, you know, that's 43 or four, four years ago, 45 years ago. Um, nobody would ever sing this song today, I don't think. But it went like this. He's still working on me to make me what I ought to be. It took him just a week to make the moon and the stars, the sun and the earth and Jupiter and Mars. How loving and patient he must be because he's still working on me. Sort of a childish sounding song. We sang it until we were sick of it. Over and over and over. I don't know if somebody in the church really needed some more sanctification than they were getting or not, and that was the reason for the campaign. 
but I'm reminded of something. Not only the particulars of the gospel, I'm reminded of the power of the gospel to sanctify. And that every one of us are in the process of being saved every single day. And even if you've made a mess of things, God isn't through with you yet. Because that salvation will go on changing you and changing you. And when somebody comes to you and they say, you're a mess, you're a mess. Can't you see your life? What's it worth? You just look at them and say, please be patient with me. God is not finished with me yet. Can you just say that with me? Please be patient. God is not finished with me yet. Come on now. Please be patient. God is not finished with me yet. One more time. Please be patient. God is not finished with me yet. Would you like me to make some buttons? <laughs> would, you, would you like me to teach you that song? It's sort of catchy. It's one of those songs that once you start singing it again, I can't get it out of my head. It's like those, some of those Disney World songs. It's a small, small world. It's a... <laughs> There's the particulars of the gospel. There's the power of the gospel. The power of the gospel not only to sanctify, but then I want you to see finally the power of the gospel to save. That other name I wanted you to see was the name of Paul. He didn't actually use his name, but obviously you know he's talking about himself. In verse 9, he says, For I am the least of the apostles who am not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, listen to how many times he uses the word grace but by the grace of God, I am what I am, and by his grace, or and his grace toward me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God, which was with me, his grace, his grace, his grace, his grace. You remember Paul? Remember the problem with Paul? He was a religious sinner. You realize that sometimes they are the hardest ones to reach? He was on a mission to stamp out Christianity. He had papers in his hands on his way to Damascus to find as many Christians as he could to arrest them and bring them to what he believed was justice for them to stop the expansion of the, of the message of Jesus about his resurrection. But on that road, he's stricken down by a blinding light and he meets for the very first time the resurrected Savior and his life is transformed. His life is changed. The man who would have been like an ISIS soldier or a Taliban soldier who was hunting down Christians suddenly has dramatically changed by the power of God and by the power of the gospel. And how was that that it took place? What was the provision that changed Paul's life? It was the grace of God. The unmerited and undeserved favor three times in one verse. It was the grace of God. It was the grace of God. It was the grace of God. In, in 1 Timothy, he says, I'm the chief of sinners. I didn't deserve anything except to be separated from God forever. But in his grace, he came to me again and again and again, and he saved me. And then he talks about his performance. And because I've experienced his grace, People sometimes think grace means you can just go live any way you want to live and do anything you want to do. That just means you don't understand grace. Because Paul says, regardless of what all the others have done, the other apostles have done, I have labored more than all of them. The grace of God has motivated me to do everything in my power 
to be able to proclaim the message of the gospel because the power of the gospel can sanctify if you're a believer in Jesus already, but the power of the gospel can save those that are lost without Jesus. Should I skip forward? I'll skip forward since you didn't say anything. That's why we bring to the third point the particulars of the gospel, the power of the gospel, and that last point was the priority of the gospel. Paul says, when I came to you, that's the first thing I gave to you. That's the first thing I gave to you. I delivered to you, verse uh, number three, to you first of all, first of all, what is the church's role in the world today? It is first of all, hear the words, it is first of all to bring the gospel message. There's a man that I don't know him personally, but I know him from a distance. He was the senior vice president of spiritual development at Liberty University for a long time, and he's now out into another ministry, but his name is David Nasser. I want to show you by reading his story as I finish, I want to show you the power of the gospel. The power of the gospel to sanctify, the power of the gospel to save. There isn't any better way to share the gospel than just giving your testimony, just telling people what Jesus did for you. And listen to David as he gives his testimony. I was nine years old when I decided that I hated God. I hated him because I believed he hated me first. It was 1979, during the middle of the Iranian Revolution. Ayatollah Khomeini and his religious zealots had recently overthrown the existing government and seized political power. My father was a military officer in the previous regime. A couple of weeks into the revolution, I was at school when we were called outside. A soldier read off three names, including mine, and called us to the front. Removing a gun from his holster, he quoted from the Quran and told me he would kill me in order to deliver a message to supporters of the old regime. Fortunately, the school principal intervened and the soldier relented. Traumatized, I rushed home to tell my father what had happened. Despite his usual sternness, he took me into his lap and pledged to keep, keep us safe. He devised a plan to leverage my mother's heart issue as a means of escape. We met with a few trusted doctors offering everything we owed, everything we owned, excuse me, if they would risk helping us. One day, my mother began faking chest pains. She was rushed to the hospital where the doctors assessed her and recommended a trip to Switzerland for open heart surgery. My mother suggested praying to the God of America named Jesus. Maybe he would let us into his country her plan sounds silly in retrospect, but it worked. One week later, we were flying to America. He skips forward in his life. I can't read you the whole story, but he goes on. A few months after graduation from high school, a friend asked why I seemed so down. I explained that all my friends were moving away and I was feeling isolated. He suggested coming with him to church the next morning. I conceded that I would go, but only with my parents' permission. To my utter shock, they didn't immediately shoot down the idea. Unbeknownst to me, some people from this church had been, had been dining at the restaurant my father owned. 
when they noticed he was shorthanded, now listen to this, they left their seats and began waiting and bussing tables. For days, they kept returning and serving. Their kindness touched my father's heart. And so I walked into the enormous Baptist church one Sunday morning as a youth rally was taking place. And within five minutes, everyone was dispersing. Everyone except Larry No. Everyone in our town knew Larry. He was a local legend, a linebacker from a rival football team who was outspoken about his faith. Throughout the Bible study, he made sure I felt included. One Sunday night, the preacher invited people forward to give their lives to God. Afraid? I slipped out quickly and drove home thinking I was finished with this church stuff. Arriving home, I wanted to show God who, who was boss of my life, so I took one of the youth group's Bibles and I doused it with lighter fluid, but I couldn't find a match. Frustrated and curious, all at once, I opened the Bible and began reading when I came to the story of Peter. Aren't you glad Jesus didn't give up on him? When I came to the story of Peter walking in the water toward Jesus, it came alive. God was calling me to step out, out of myself, out of my excuses. That night in my bedroom, I trusted Jesus. My father immediately reproached me. You can't be a Christian. He said, we are Muslims. But getting baptized sent them over the edge. When I arrived home, my father had a duffel bag packed. I was dead to him, he thundered, and I had to leave. Why won't you be baptized? Those of you that have trusted in Jesus... Here's a man who gets put out of his house because he obeys the Lord and follows him in believer's baptism. That night I called Larry No and told him I was homeless. He invited me to come live with him and six other interns in a house that belonged to the church. In the months to come, they helped me grow tremendously in my walk with the Lord. Meanwhile, one by one, God started saving my family. First, my sister came to faith. Then my mother and brother were saved. We prayed relentlessly for my father, and eventually he too gave his life to Christ. He finishes, God, in his amazing grace, has turned my family's tragedy into a testimony. Though I hated him as a child, I can see now that he was holding us all along. You don't think the gospel's powerful? The gospel is powerful to save and the gospel is powerful to sanctify, and it's the reason, it's the first thing we present to anybody 